so we're in real start now. Because you have arrived and you are very well. Is that wine? We should have said free wine. Then everybody. <laughs> okay. Welcome. It's an utmost pleasure, and I've been looking forward to this arrangement because the theme is good, the topic is great. Who decides academic debate? The climate? Who sets the rules? Whatever discourse is governing our way of speaking and speaking and talking and navigating here. So um, you make your own presentation of yourself. We have three speakers. First is Irene. Very good. And then it's Sue. And in the end it's Kirsten. We have three uh, dedicated speakers. And then we take a short break. And then we have an open debate. So it's the third twist this spring. And I plan to make them another time this autumn. But uh, we'll see. Maybe the resources will be cut. I don't know. Uh. Then I make it anyhow. Without resources. Well, we'll make it. Without wine. Tap, tap water directly from the faucet. <laughs> no. Uh, my name is Irene Torres. I'm a PhD student here on my way out, June 9, and just coming back from my defense. I study education, and I did my fieldwork in my home country, Ecuador. So that's where I will be residing permanently, finally. Or so I say. Um, because I'm the first person, I'm going to state some obvious things that we all know and they're not very intelligent, but so we have, a, I think, a basic understanding. Um, although we haven't planned it, but it's more, you know, individual decision. There is, of course, the macro structure, whatever you want to call it. Um, global trends, you know, deciding what is making money, so what research is worthwhile, useful, or needed, how research should be done. And in this global trend, is, they're involved the transnationals, the publishing companies, pharmaceutical companies, genetic companies, I have no idea. And um, then it, 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 I, don't, I don't want to bring it to another level. I think that's actually the level where everything is happening. But then we have. Uh, countries like Denmark, where the state decides there is public funding, where do we send it, how, to what research, what research is useful again. And the state is also looking at global trends and publishing companies and prestige and rankings, university rankings that are based again on publishing companies, rankings of journals, what is being published. Kind of a vicious circle. And we have, of course, these peripheral countries like Ecuador, which has no funding, so there's no research, so we don't have these kind of debates. <laughs> we don't need them. And then there's us, you know, trying to find a job or a position of prestige, trying to get published in the high-ranking journals that somebody else decides that they're high-ranking for some ulterior or ex external reason. And we kind of feed into the game and play by those rules and reinforce those rules, replicate those rules, and uh, embody those rules. And we complain, oh, this is not how it should be working. And it is, and, and we kind of enjoy being part of the game. And we think we can do it differently and you know, make some excuse for being politically active through my research and my publications. And I think at the end of the day, it isn't true. 
because you're still within this whatever you want to call it system or core I don't know and I was thinking you know what then the, this what dilemmas does this pose and is there a way out what are the ways out and I was thinking about my own experience and thinking when does good research happen or good academic intellectual debate how does it happen are there necessary conditions is it a, is it a personal decision an institutional arrangement a specific arrangement I don't know and uh, for my research and also my personal experience I, I've been developing this idea of meeting the other you know opening up meeting the other what does it mean is it worthwhile is it necessary what does it involve and I have studied one year at the University in Ecuador where I have also worked teaching one year in Spain I was one year in Norway I was some years in the United States for my bachelor's degree and then my master's degree in three different universities I kept on um, self-immolating you know lighting a match and burning myself up in protest for whatever was going on and moving on and on and on and figuring out and then I started my PhD and I did exactly the same thing I in Holland I lit up a match and I burned myself it's metaphorical of course and left Holland and ended up here so I can talk from experience that it's a nice place it is it is a nice place but of course time goes by things happen and you start wondering what's really going on especially because this twister came from from my perspective from an email we got saying somebody's being attacked we have to defend this person and I thought okay this is very weird this is the first time that something like this happens I've had all sorts of weird things going on in Ecuador, Spain, the United States, you know, Holland. But this was very particular and I, I started thinking about it and I started arguing with Steen. We should debate this and I wrote to Klaus Holm, some of you got that email. And I kept on writing privately to Klaus Holm. We really need to talk about this because I thought it was different, important. I don't know. So very generally speaking, I find that my experience is only in this building, but I've, I've also read a lot of Danish research, and I find that there's a parallel. They're, they're similar. They're, they mirror each other. And one thing that I noticed that was very weird in Danish research was that articles would say, in Denmark, the education system is like this and that. And I got so aggravated, I confronted one of the authors, and I asked him, why would you say that? Do you have a national survey? Have you been in every school in the country to say that? And he would say, um, no, it's in the law. And then I would say, but then you have to say, according to the Danish law, the education system should be this way. But you keep on writing in the Danish school system. And then I interviewed Niels Engelund because I was also aggravated with him, but don't tell him that he was very nice, so he doesn't have to. <laughs> and then more and more research. And then I started comparing, do the British researchers say in England, in Spain, in Italy, in Ecuador. And then I realized the building, and I think Danish universities are very closed. It's for the Danes, it's about the Danes, it's within this leitmotif of being Danish. 
In some ways, I find it positive because Holland, for example, has so much external funding, they just accept anybody who comes with funding. And it, I think it degrades research and university teaching as well. So it's not inherently positive. But I found in Holland that there was debate, that we could meet, that there were things going on, that we had an interpretive research group and we met to discuss nothing and everything and we didn't even understand what we were reading, but we met, we were there, somebody was there and, and the floors connected. The technology group would talk to the philosophy group, the philosophy group talked to the innovation group or communication group and we, we, we took courses everywhere. I took an ecological modernization theory course which was completely weird and I enjoyed it, I learned. And I was completely against the theory, but these guys were very smart. And uh, the way they approach research is so interesting. And I thought, this is such a good way to approach it, the theory. I don't like it, but how they do it, how they build their mental models, I don't know. So it's good to be close, but I don't, I, I'm not sure if it's that good. You know, like the articles I read in Denmark, the Danish system. And then we come to more, to smaller matters, you know, me reaching for a job position in Ecuador, some sort of prestige, publishing a Scopus indexed article, playing by the rules, following, you know, the leaders. And I get to this more interpersonal level where I get this email saying I have to defend somebody because she's a colleague. And I get scolded in the corridors. That's not how we do it. That is not done here. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm scolded about a, you know, a package arriving to the student worker's office. I wonder what would happen if I actually opened my mouth, you know? In Holland, it was different because when I started complaining, they really told me, you don't like it. There's the door. It's very honest, very straightforward. I, I haven't heard that here. I have complained a little bit, but nobody has said, you know, nobody has showed me the door. So it is different, it is nicer. But I feel that in Holland, at least we were fighting, we were debating, we were exchanging. Even if it was a nasty work environment, there was still some intellectual debate going on. Floors were speaking with each other. I find it appalling that there's sociology, anthropology, and, and philosophy, and I read all their stuff, and we don't talk to each other. Um, and then we go to heteroglossia and, you know, uh, opening up, meeting the other, finding out what the other is saying or trying to figure out. I don't feel that's going on here. Maybe it's just the building. I don't know. Trying to fit into the mold. And then I'm thinking, what is really going on here? Is it the building? Is it the organizational culture? But I've been around and there's always an organizational culture. In my house, there's an organizational culture. But I think what's particular about here, I can't talk, speak for all of Denmark, but I feel it's very Danish, is to try to mold you culturally. So the power struggles are not anymore about you being smarter or less smart, or you having a theory that's different from mine, but is, uh, are you fitting the mold? Are you doing it the right way? Are you becoming a Dane? Are you pronouncing correctly? And um, it's so 
culturally normative, but not organizationally. It's like a national imposition of some sort that I still don't understand. I'm leaving soon, so I won't. But I feel there's this thing of really not opening up to the rest, you know? In Holland, this university was 60% men, and they were all in leadership positions. And it was clearly up front a power struggle. But it wasn't, it wasn't about imposing some, some national culture. It was something else. And I think here, also in the articles, you know, in Denmark, the Danish system, I get that a lot, and I keep Actually, I want to write an article about it. <laughs> If I ever have the time, I will do a literature review on Danish articles and study this phenomenon. But um, then I'm thinking, what, what, what dilemmas does this pose? Um, do we need a way out? Do we need in Denmark or in this building to open up and meet the other? Is it really necessary? Uh, does research depend upon it? Can we just look at our belly button and, and, and figure out things? Maybe we can. But um, I hate people who quote authors, but I'm writing my kappa, so I'm very you know, author-oriented these days. <laughs> and Vaktin says, you can't love your own mirror reflection. And, uh, and my quote for the kappa is, uh, you know, love is this urgent curiosity that this guy Emerson said, really looking at the other. With, with, with this cognitive and emotional interest. And I'm thinking, we use all these education theories. There's all this learning in the building. And I don't find that love. I don't find that urgent curiosity. Well, maybe, maybe there's a self-curiosity. But then I think, looking at yourself in the mirror the whole day, where does that lead you? That's like the. The, the evil queen of the Snow White uh, fairy tale or something. I'm exaggerating, but that's my style, sorry. It's not very intellectual. So I think, what have I done in the past? I have self-immolated. I have burned uh, a match and you know, lit myself up uh, in the Prague Spring style. You know, Tiananmen Square, the, the man with the two shopping bags. You remember him, right? Did it bring some change? I think it did. I think he died for a reason. I think the people in Prague died for a reason. I'm not calling for all of us to you know, protest outside and die in a Danish blizzard. But I think if we stay out long enough, it will happen. <laughs> but um, then there, there must be some other, other you know, opening up. And again, it's redundant, meeting the other, thinking, if Morton can send us his train ticket to Eduale, you all received that email. Yeah, you did. It was Eduale. Everybody got it. Um, about him not clipping the train ticket? Mm -hmm. We all got it. Well, you're more important people, you didn't read it. But us, you know, less <laughs> intellectual, we opened and said, what is this? And why can't we share everything else? What, everything. Oh. <laughs> I, you know, I would love to know where you go, Sue, during the week. And why are we? Why aren't we sharing all our ideas, our articles, whatever, wherever we're going? I mean, we're one small, four-floor building. We should be, you know, exploring more stuff. I mean, we are already overburdened with 
the articles and emails Sue receives, I think, 2,000 a month or something. I get 30 a month. But um, why should I get Morton's train ticket issue and I can't know what everybody else is doing? Where are they headed? Who can I talk to? Who is interesting? And uh, see things from other different perspectives in the same building. You know, it kind of, as you can see, frustrates me a little. But um, so uh, is it a real issue? Or maybe I'm exaggerating and I'm too social <laughs> and I want to exchange verbally. And what I should do is just go into the journals, go into the Amazon.com and go into the library. For example, in, in Wageningen, they send you, I'm still subscribed to the Wageningen Library newsletter. Because they send you all the new books. You can also you can ask for different fields, all the fields, uh, what professors are writing, where are they lecturing, what are they doing, and there's some kind of mechanism through which you can say, oh, I like this, I would like to talk to this guy, and and then you have even in an evil environment the opportunity to talk to these people and do something new and some kind of openness, and I don't know. Um, it's also the campus life, you know, in the United States, everybody's active. You have the Take Back the Night March, this, movies, uh, things going on. They feed the students with a lot of stuff. And it's, uh, it's been criticized, you know, the, 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 the glass castle, whatever, you know. They pamper to the American, the US students. But I think it creates something, it's some kind of energy or, uh, it catalyzes something else. I mean, it's not all about publishing and being in your office. Or maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. That's what I wanted to say. Yeah. And then, thank you. And uh, now it's Sue's turn, and we'll continue. Well, I guess you have said something that we should debate a later. <laughs> Throw them all up and a train ticket on the table. <laughs> so, welcome. We have to wait half an hour whilst um, oh. this does its things. I think it will work in a short while. Yeah, but it takes its time. But anyway, I agree a lot with what you've said. Oh, thank yeah, you. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Um, Harry Potter, where are you? Come on. Hey? Doesn't let you click? No, it's still winding up. You know, oh, it's got elastic okay. band in the middle there that needs there tightening up. Okay. Um, so these were the questions that Irena and, and Steen set us. What does academic debate tell us about the different power structures and mechanisms in Danish universities? I like the idea. We've got Danish in there. Um, <clears throat> <laughs> and what are the implications of these power issues for academic debate? Well, I had no idea how to answer this question, so um, I'm having a go. Um, and I thought I'd start off with the twister itself. Um, and the previous ones I've been to, where there have been other people speaking, there's a big audience, and uh, there's quite, usually quite a good discussion. Um, and I agree with Irena, that's quite rare here. And that's why I took the invitation. I thought it was great to join in a discussion. Um, but I think it's also rare, not only within the university, but also between the university and society. 
Now, there's lots and lots of discussion around particular projects, and I think Dem Danish uh, DPU is very, very good at having good conversations with relevant people in society around particular projects. But I don't see a kind of overall discussion with, in society about where Danish education is going. Um, and then on the end of Steen's mail inviting me to do this, it said, P.S., it's a Conamore arrangement. <laughs> and I thought, well, what does that tell us? Um, well, that is a code for, for those who haven't been working here. For There's no hours allocated to it. And hours are the currency for our work programmes. And so it also means it doesn't count in any performance measures. So this was a very interesting thing, and that set me thinking about, well, why don't we have these discussions? Because let's take that forward. So thinking of performance measures, I started playing with the idea of performance. And one way of thinking about performance is performing your duty. I mean, we have a position within a public institution, um, and there's certain kind of expectations attached to what that involved. And then the second idea of performance I was thinking of was academic performance as in kind of being in a theatre and putting on a performance, doing something for display, which you know isn't the real thing. There's a kind of distance there. So that's another meaning of academic performance. And then there's the idea of performance management, which is where the hours come in, by, of academics by managers and the performance indicators they use. So they were the things I was going to discuss. So performing a duty. Well, my starting point in thinking, OK, what's the duty of an academic? Um, and I was thinking, well, our role actually is a social role. And I thought, well, actually, it's to analyse what's going on in the present and to develop ideas for the future. Sounds quite simple, but it's quite a big job. So whether you know, it's finding the cure for cancer or whether, like me, it's thinking what happens when we eventually get rid of neoliberalism, it, it, that is the project, I think, for academia. So what do we need in order to fulfil that duty? Well, we need the freedom to think otherwise. And that usually, if you're thinking otherwise really well, that usually upsets somebody. So um, you need the space and the support to think otherwise. But that isn't just because we're academics and we studied for a long time and we've got a nice job and therefore we have a personal right to have academic freedom. I think that's a different thing. I think academic freedom is part of a social bargain, if you like. It's part of the social duty. It's not a, pri a personal privilege, but a social duty. We have to be able to explain what we do to people outside of the university. So that's what I was, this is me just speculating, but I was just thinking that's my version of what the duty of being an academic involves. And so I suppose the, the long running question on that is, well, do we have the conditions to be able to do that? Now, if I turn to the second thing, which is the Academic Play Act, we're allocated tasks and Steen can't give me any tasks for being here today. So some things are not included. Um, so in that case, do those things not count? And then that comes a question, well, who's reckoning? Who, who determines what counts and what doesn't count? 
And what tends to count here at DPU and in other universities in Denmark, but interestingly, it's all slightly different in each university, um, are what they call measured outputs. And these are usually based on the government funding algorithm, which has four main components. One is what's called publications in top journals. And they have an index called the BFI index. Um, so articles in top journals count, but books don't count so much. Anthologies don't count for a lot. Newspaper articles don't feature at all. TV interviews, that's laughing stock. So there's a, there's a hierarchy there in publications as to what counts. Secondly, student exam passes. I don't know, we haven't got any master's students here, have we? Um, when the master's students pass their exams, they click one more click on the ministry's what's called taximeter. So it click, 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 click. And then the ministry pays the university a fixed sum per click. And that's called the stop, which I can't pronounce properly. Can you say it for me? Stop. Stop. Ah, um, glottal stops. And um, that's what counts. Not whether the education was any good, whether we got them excited, whether they read something that changed their view of the world, whether they walked out of this place thinking differently about the world. Um, the third thing is PhD completions, and I won't say anything about that because I've got three of my students sitting here. And the fourth thing then is external research funding, and that's the amount, the number of euros or krona, not how important that project is for developing human knowledge. So these are the measured outputs. So then we have academic performance, and we all have to produce these things. But the question is, I think, whether we actually begin to believe in these things or whether we keep an ironic distance from them, and we know that it's just a performance, and we try and work our working lives so that we create space for doing the real thing as well. And I think that's the real tussle at the moment. And I know lots of colleagues here at DPU are complaining that the the walls are caving in and there's less and less time. But I've just been in England and um, they're really caving in there. So this is what I want to talk about. The important thing, I think, and this is going to be my conclusion, to actually keep the walls pushed back as far as we can, as long as we can. There's a, I, I can't remember the German phrase for it, but there's, there's a German phrase for doing things because you think the government's going to want you to do them before they've asked you to do it. <laughs> Giving way on something that's important before you've actually been forced to give way. And I see that happening here as I did much worse in England. So I suppose my conclusion for all this is to really keep pushing for what it is we feel is important. We know we've got to perform in that artificial sense. But try and make it so that it doesn't take up the whole of our time and energy, so we've got time for twisters and things like that, and then really use that extra time in creating the kind of academic community we want so we don't give it up before we're forced to. I suppose that's really what I'm arguing. And I, I kind of put on the bottom here a quote from Liz Morrish, who's been doing a lot of speaking against performance management in England, who says... No student signs up to a university because of the quality of the management team 
or the award-winning human resource team. So it's us, it's our energy, it's our ideas that keep the whole place going, and we, we have to preserve that. Okay, then the third thing then is performance management. And I, I was thinking about this. There's, there's a kind of um, a linguistic thing here, elocutionary silencing, which I think is a nice, nice phrase. It means when you say something as if you're going to make it happen, but you also silence everything else. So when, when um, university managers declare what performance is, they make performance indicators, they make performance happen, but they're also trying to close down everything else. And I'm, it, I think it's important not to let that happen. They're, the phrases come over as if any other discourse is impermissible or even unintelligible, as if you're talking complete nonsense to say that academics should have a life outside uh, performance management. So there's an English phrase, Tina. I'm sorry if there's any Tinas in the room. But um, it means there is no alternative. Uh, Mrs Thatcher made that very famous. There are alternatives. This is what we have to hold on to. Um, so I've put in a bit about auditing there, which we can miss. Um, but th these, these management criteria are set up as if they're objective, um, or as if they're objectives, that they're setting objectives. But they're not. It's a process of objectification where academics are turned into tools for management purposes. It's a, it's a completely different kind of thing. And it disguises the judgments that are being made, the pressures that are being put on. Here, the bullying isn't so bad as in, in the British universities where I've been. Um, but there, in England now, there are very, very strong threats of, of demotion if you don't meet the performance managers. And uh, just very recently, a very senior professor at University College London committed suicide because he was called into a one-to-one -one with his manager and told he was not meeting his performance indicators and he was going to be demoted. So these are not simple, straight, you know, little things. People feel that they're being completely undermined by these things. Now, the most famous example in Britain at the moment is at Newcastle University, where the management have come in with a strategy called raising the bar. And I've just put this on. It means putting the high jump higher and higher. Um, and the reason, they say, is that Newcastle University is lacking in competitiveness. There's, it's as if there's, the universities are a combat zone. You know, you've got to compete with each other. And that competition is driven by rankings. They want everybody to be in the top quartile. We can't have everybody in the top quartile. And those who aren't, they call bottom rustlers, which is the most insulting, horrible phrase I've heard for a long time. Nobody can slip beneath the bar. They expect about 95, 85% of the staff at Newcastle University to be able to get over the bar. 15%, what happens to them? So this is designed for failure. This is designed to carve off a percentage of the staff that are going to fail. So they've set up parameters for performance that mean, and they're very big and they're very tight, and so the space for actually doing other things is getting very, very, very small and circumscribing academic autonomy. The, the, the um, equivalent kind of performance measure in Britain is called the REF, the Research Something, Something, Something. Um, and this is done every four years. 
but the criteria here is that you have to be meeting the criteria for this national evaluation of research quality every year, not every four years. So you've got to be producing the outputs every year, whereas the national uh, evaluation is over a four-year period. Um, everything else just about is invisible, and if you don't keep that up, then you're incapable. Now, academic life goes up and down. You have periods with a lot of, of uh, research, then you sit in a corner and think for a long time. You, that kind of annual productivity is not, to do, not anything to do with um, academic life, as far as I can see. And so what they're doing is they're manufacturing instability. Now, academics across the university have actually fought back, and they have set up a, a, a research program where uh, academics are invited to keep uh, diaries and ethnographic accounts of everything that happens to them that's to do with this raising the bar. So they're doing a mass ethnography in the university um, and some of us are, are outside are kind of supporting them in this. And I think that's, a, and it's called living in a metricized university. And I think that's a really, really important way in which they're using their academic abilities to fight back against the metricized university. Now, of course, this doesn't happen in England, in Denmark, where am I? Um, well, it doesn't happen to that extent in Denmark. But I really think it's important to be very, very wary of things that are happening in Denmark, and in particular at the IT university down the road. They've introduced what's called the Model for Measuring Teaching and Research Contribution. So it's nothing about performance management, is it? It's, it's the contribution of academics towards their university, which of course we all want to make. I mean, that's, yeah. And the argument is very similar to the argument in Newcastle. ITU must be as good as the average Danish university. And then they've worked out, in order to be as good, a full or associate professor has to earn what they've called 100 performance points. So they've introduced a new currency here each year. How do you calculate a performance point? And this is where, you know, you, you start losing hair. One performance point is granted per 14 and a half ECTS. There's no course on earth that's 14 and a half ECTS. And a professor must earn at least 50 performance points, i.e. 715 ECTS, in a two-year period, right? 25 performance points per 2.55 points in the national system allocating points for publications. And a professor must get 40 of those in a two-year period. So, you know, the professor has enormous power to be able to decide to do more of one thing and more of another year by year, but within certain parameters. But then, every year, you have to get at least 10 performance points in external... Now, this is the interesting thing. Not in earning external funding, but in spending external funding. Now, I can't understand. I haven't interviewed, finished my interviews there yet, so I can't understand why yet. So how do you get a performance point? Well, 25 performance points is per 1,114,540 Danish kroner. Now, who worked that out? That's a lot of money. And that's a lot of money 
um, if you've got to earn a, at least half of that per year or spend half of that per year. Uh, then there's assistant professors have to earn 55 performance points, so roughly about half of a professor. Postdocs also have to earn 55. PhDs were going to have to earn some, but now they've been let off. Um, now, if the whole group, if, if individuals don't meet their performance points, the group they belong to, the research group they belong to, has to, has to produce the performance points overall. So here you move from a position where it's managers managing you to you have to manage your colleagues to make sure that everybody is up to scratch, otherwise you're going to have to overperform and you can't have lazy people around and da 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 da. And the end of the document it said, yes, people can be fired. Okay, so how could it be otherwise? Steen, how am I doing for time? Oh, you have a five, four. Okay, minutes. that's good. Um, well, I think I come back to the thing about society. That whole stream of the government setting performance indicators that the management then picks up, which are then put down onto our laps, is positioning government as, as the universities are responsible to government. And we are in the sense that it's the national legislation that sets us up and the, the annual uh, finance budget that um, sets us up. But actually, in the law, where's the law? There. It doesn't say that we're responsible to government. It says we're responsible to society. And it says the university should collaborate with surrounding society and contribute to promoting growth, welfare, and development of the society. And the university, as an integrated part of its work, should exchange knowledge and competences on a mutual basis with a large circle of actors, institutions, authorities, public and private organisations. And I, I don't have any problem with that at all. I do have a problem with that government arrogating that to itself. So one question is, could the universities make themselves responsible to society? And would that mean they had more negotiating space with government? It's a question. I don't know. But Jakob Erber and I, when we were working on this, we drew that diamond map because we couldn't work out what the university was in the law. It doesn't define itself in the law. Is it the university as a whole? Is it the faculty? Is it the department? Is it the individual academic that should have relations with surrounding society? We're not quite sure. It doesn't make it clear. So we've kind of drawn these arrows into the edge, and it maybe dots in right to the academic. But around it, you've got all the possible actors that the university could have an engagement with in society. I mean, obviously government, industry, private sector organisations, students, civil society, the research councils, foundations, the EU, other funders, and you could keep going. I mean, you could just keep drawing lots and lots of sides to this university and have lots and lots of relations. And it would be interesting to map where the university has relations at the moment. You could do it in terms of the amount of interchange, or you could do it in terms of the amount of money, or you could use all sorts of parameters. So one question is, how does the university situate itself in relation to all the different actors in society? And the second question then is, well, could we actually ge generate kind of operationalized methods of conversing with society? 
Because society is a flimsy word. Who is society? I mean, how do you know that you've talked to society? That if you, or the public is also another flimsy word. You can't actually shake their hands and say, hello, society. I mean, it's, it, you talk to as many people as you like and there's still more people you haven't talked to. So you need some kind of method for operationalising a notion of society. And I've been working with uh, David Greenwood, and my PhD students know this, because we tried this method out amongst our project. But that's really, you don't know this, but you're guinea pigs for a much bigger attempt <laughs> to try this out uh, between universities and society. And that is to set up what's called search conferences. And what I have in mind is, for example, DPU could run a search conference every two years. And what that would involve would be finding what the main areas are that we either do or want to have conversations with in society, not try and be comprehensive. If we're doing this every two years, we can keep changing it so that we don't need to be comprehensive every time. What are the areas that we want to have conversations with? And then find people in those areas who won't act as representatives, they'll speak for themselves, but they come with a lot of personal experience and the ability both to communicate that and also to listen. So they're not people who are going to take over the whole meeting. They're going to join in a dialogue. But they're, they're good talkers, but they're also good listeners and they'll engage. And you set those 40 people in a room and do what we did um, in November, which was we put a big piece of brown paper on the wall and we all drew on it about how did the current state of affairs get to be as it is. Now, you can, that current affairs can be whatever you like. With us, it was how the university got to be where it is. And we all put our personal experiences on this, and we created a common history. And then the next exercise was to say, OK, this is the trends that we can see happening at the moment. If they continue into the future, what's going to happen? Is that where we want to be? What would be our ideal future? Well, that was the third exercise. And the fourth exercise was to think, how do we get from the likely future closer to the ideal future? What projects can we set up? Who do we need to work with? How do we do that? So that was one, um, just a practical idea for how we open up the conversation. And this is my last slide. Um, so kind of a summary, to my mind, Society, industry, government, whoever they like, making demands on us is fine. The more the merrier. Quite happy for whatever anyone wants to, universities to do to let us know. But we ha should have the power to negotiate with them. They can't tell us what they can do. They can ask us to do things. And we can negotiate with them. But then I come to the internal side of the university. Do we have a space within DPU, within Aarhus University, within other universities, for us collectively to look at the kind of contracts that we're engaging with, with surrounding society, the kinds of projects that we're getting onto? Do we know what each other's doing in a way that we can see whether we think this is a good way for the university to be going? And in particular, by law, the university, although it's not quite clear who the university is, is responsible for protecting the, the research freedom of the institution and of each individual. Here it comes back to your email. 
Do we have mechanisms for doing that? And I don't think we do. And then the last, so I think there's, there's two things there that we need to do to answer your question. You know, how do we protect the, the space? And the third thing is that I've given you examples from England to see that the perform individual performance management has not closed in on us completely yet. So I think it's really important for us to use every opportunity we can to perform our own values and to support each other and to do that in a style that we feel comfortable with and we want to protect. One of the problems in British universities is that they tried to kill each other with words and then when it came to kind of closing down those spaces, nobody really wanted to protect them. So I think having a style of interaction where what I call critical encouragement is really, really important so that we feel that it's precious and then if anything does start to attack it, we really want to protect it. Thank you. Thank you, Sue. Uh, just two small comments while Kirsten is approaching. One was that last year I had the great honor to give you five hours in the Tempus accounting, each of you. <laughs> now it's uh, been cancelled. So you're absolutely right. Last year we had five hours. You each. had five hours last year? Yeah, last time. For we didn't last time. But they simply erased that because we had to cut down also on the twist project. Uh, uh, second is that maybe the work you were looking for was maybe this Axel Honneth, Selbstverdinglichung, but it's self-reification in advance. It's like self uh, Reifying his own labor force in advance to be able to survive as a labor force that has self reified itself. We also call it mm -hmm. anticipatory self perseverance or something like yeah. that. I don't know if that was worth Yes, something like that. Could be self reified. I would call it fortune teller. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Okay, so Kirsten, you are the next speaker. I yes. was looking forward to hearing you. Yeah, Once yeah. again, last time was about the status of the classic. It became a text in asterisks, and many of my students, they liked it, and wrote it in their exam papers, and uh, I've oh. always love to listen to you. So, how Well, you thank you. Thank you for inviting me, and uh, a special thanks to Re Irene for her initiative, because my outset is your initiative, your, your email, and the occasion of this email, which was, uh, and the occasion, I hope you are all informed about it, uh, this was uh, Dorte Stavnes yeah. and uh, Mjulskær uh, uh, filed a complaint against uh, Thomas Rømer for, and they accused him of uh, cyberbullying them and uh, being hateful and uh, deliberately dis uh, distorting their theoretical points. Um, and this was, uh, the, 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 uh, they filed a complaint to the, to the dean and it was uh, supported by uh, management and you, and uh, when we were informed about this, you sent out this email and you asked us, we should talk about this. I thought that was an excellent, a very courageous uh, initiative and I would like to use this opportunity to salute your uh, courage. It's, uh, I'm, I'm, um, I admired, I'm, I'm impressed by your, your courage and I think it's very, very important that we talk about this case. So what I'm going to do in the following is to analyze, uh, analyze this case and try to try to give uh, or give, give an analysis of why it could go so terribly wrong. Um, um, 
When I was informed uh, that uh, Professor Dorothea Stavnes and Malou Juskjær had uh, filed a complaint against our colleague Thomas Rømer, uh, I was uh, taken aback. Uh, I didn't see it coming. I was not just, uh, it's to be overdramatic to say I was shocked, uh, but I was not just surprised, I was really taken aback. I didn't see that coming. And uh, when I learned about the content of the complaint, um, I was uh, personally intimidated. Why? Um, this case has absolutely nothing to do with me, nothing. So why was I intimidated? And uh, when Römer, uh, as a result of this uh, complaint, went public, uh, it resulted, as you all know, in a ferocious public outcry. Why? That's my. I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to try to analyze why was I personally intimidated and why this ferocious public uh, reaction. It has nothing to do with me. Why did Why did all the public think it had something to do with them? Why did it concern so many people? I took sides in this uh, conflict. And in what follows, I shall try to explain why I did not just take sides, uh, that I was forced to take sides. And what follows is a protest against having to take sides. I shall argue that this forced choice is produced uh, by a paranoid logic. That's why my title of my paper is Paranoia in Academia. Uh, to, to my great personal relief, uh, the dean dismissed the complaint unequivocally. And after having read all the do documents carefully, my conclusion is that the dean made the right decision. And in the following, I will give my reasons for this conclusion. This dismissal was a personal relief. Had he not uh, dismissed the complaint, it could have been the beginning of the end of academic discourse. And I'm serious, I'm not being overdramatic. It would have meant, meant, uh, made academia meaningless. And I have given myself uh, the title Paranoia in Academia and the subtitle The Hysteric Meets the Paranoiacs. That's my uh, uh, subtitle. Uh, I work on, the, I'm a philosopher, but I work on the background of psychoanalysis. My concepts are psychoanalytic. And in the following, I shall use categories like psychosis, paranoia, and hysteria, neurosis. These are not clinical categories, like um, in the sense of diagnosing madness, the pathological against an, any idea of normality. To be very, very brief, in psychoanalysis, normality is not an option. Nobody has any claim to normality, according to, to, um, to psychoanalysis. The categories neurosis, psychosis, and perversion sig signify structural differences between possible ways of being in the world, ways of being in the relation to the other. They are like uh, existentialen, as we say in German which designate different ways of existing. So I am not diagnosing anyone if anyone should decide to file a complaint against me. My, my effort is to analyze and describe structural differences between discourses, that is, different ways of being with the other. And I shall also use the concept of the other, the big other, written with a capital O. I distinguish between the other with lowercase o and the other with a capital O. 
the big other. This uh, is central to, uh, to Lacanian uh, psychoanalysis. I shall argue that one of the reasons why there were no communication between Römer and Staunschkehr Julskehr is that Römer addressed Staunis and Julskehr as representatives of the big other. And I shall argue that Staunis and Julskehr foreclose the question of the big other. That's the basic point. Römer considers them as representatives of the big other, and Staunis and Julskehr foreclose the question of the big other. Uh, now, Staunus and Juskere accuse Römer of cyberbullying and of being hateful and of distorting the aim and intention of their research. And an immediate question raises itself. Who is bullying who? Who is being hateful? Who is distorting whose work? It is Staunus and Juskere who files a complaint which could have led to Römer's professional death, that is, him being fired. So who is the subject of bullying and hatefulness, and who is the object? Here we find reversible positions. Subject and object can be reversed according to perspective. It is not evident that it is Römer who is the subject of bullying and hatred. Rather, it is entirely possible to claim that Staunus and Hulskere have reversed subject and object, that Römer is the one who is the object of bullying and the object of hatred. What is, what is significant here is this very reversibility of subject and object, this dualistic reversible logic. It all depends on whose side you're on. There is no third position outside this dual logic. Freud uh, characterized paranoia as being this very reversibility of subject and object, and reversibility of the fundamental emotions, love and hate. I'm not going to go into this. This is a complicated uh, issue, extremely interesting, but it's, uh, it will take me far way out of uh, to, to what I'm, 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 I'm going to say to this. The paranoiac experiences himself as being the object of persecution. And the undecided question is, who is hating who in paranoia, as it is possible to analyze this as a reversal of his own hatred? In other words, and now I use Lacan's concepts, what is important in this connection is that in paranoia, the relation to the other is an imaginary dual relationship. It's a dual dualistic, dual relationship. If you're being the object of hatred and persecution, it is a concrete other, someone with a face and a name who is persecuting you. Paranoiacs act, act as if they were characters in a Western. This town ain't big enough for both of us, is a, a, an idea of the paranoiac. The dual imaginary relationship is a fight to death for recognition. The dual relationship ends literally in a duel, and the outcome is that one must die. This town just ain't big enough for both of us. This case could have been the end of Römer's professional life. Staunis and Juskier refused communication with Römer. To the paranoiac, 
It's personal. It's not business. It's personal. Stauners and Juleskjær could learn something from gangster movies, uh, where the gangsters say lines like, it's not personal, it's business, before they commit their deadly acts. There's a fundamental difference at play here, because when the gangster refers to business as a reason for his destructive acts, he, re he refers to something outside the dual personal imaginary relationship. The gangster is allegedly not determined by personal lust for revenge. He kills and tortures for the sake of business, the preservation of the mob, or mob organization, and other with the capital O. He is no less aggressive, aggressive or disruptive, but the motiv motivation refers to an anonymous other, business or the organization. But wasn't this also Stauners and, and Juleskjær's argument that it was for the sake of business and the organization that Römer was potentially damaging their future professional life and even the reputation of the organization, DPU? Yes, they did say that. But what did they, what, what did they do, or rather, what did they not do? They did not answer Römer's address or challenge. Römer sent Stauners an email where he politely informed her about his public criticism of their work. He said, he, he wrote, they did not know each other uh, personally. Apparently, they have never spoken to each other. And Römer suggests that Stauners respond to his criticism. She doesn't, they don't. Instead, a few weeks later, Römer receives a letter from the dean informing him of the accusation of him bullying them and being hateful, and he's summoned for this uh, and he is to, supposed to lawyer up and all this. To repeat, they did not answer him. They did not even try to reason with him. I have read Oymer's criticism. And my point here is not whether I will subscribe to his criticism or not. This is irrelevant for my point. I, 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 I repeat. My point here is not whether I will subscribe to his criticism or not. This is irrelevant. What is relevant, however, is the fact that there's nothing in his critique that they could not respond to in the manner of, by writing this, you have demonstrated that you have misunderstood this, that, and the other for this, that, and the other reason. In the age-old traditional academic manner, this is what academics and scientists do we defend ourselves against criticism. We are dealing in so-called justified true beliefs, where the important word is not so much truth, but justification. We are obliged to justify our beliefs, our statements. This is what academia and sciences is all about. We don't deal in interesting subjective opinions. Our work must be able to stand the test of public scrutiny, and the important word here is not criticism or scrutiny, it is the word public, society, whatever we will, this, uh, this big other. By public, the question is, who is the other you are speaking to? Who is the other of an academic scientific discourse? Why this public, this anonymous other? Now I'm going to introduce this question of uh, the distinctions between uh, the the, um, uh, the other, the lowercase, and the capital uh, letter. And also, now hysteria comes into it. 
because here is the key to the structural differences between Staunis and Juleskjaer's paranoia and Römer's hysteria. Römer is incessantly attacking positions of, of authority in public. He is attacking dominant positions in ed educational sciences, Jens Rasmussen, Lars Kvartup, Klaus Holm, etc. And he calls them this DPO, this oligarchy. He is mocking them, of course. And this is how when hysteria comes into it. The hysteric and the hysterical discourse is, according to psychoanalysis, constantly questioning the big other. And by big other, it's not just a particularly, particular concrete colleague, but someone who holds a position of authority, someone, someone who is supposed to know, someone who is designing how we are supposed to think and work. The big other paves the foundation for us, sets the norms for us. And this big other is attacked by the hysteric. He is not telling us that he is the innocent victim of persecution. Rather, he is the subject of a crusade. And the important point here is that it is not for personal reasons, but for reasons of the concrete other's authority. It's the authority he is out to get. It is because the concrete other counts in academia, is to be reckoned with. It is because the other is powerful that he or she holds the position of big other, and therefore he or she is being criticized and even attacked. The hysteric does not criticize PhD students or colleagues who, who, who do not count scientifically or politically, like me, for instance. He could also have attacked me. Maybe he will one day. Um, hysterics attack concrete authorities. It is academia, not the person who is attacked. Hysterics recognize authority. Hysterics recognize the big other. If you're being attacked, criticized, you know that you are an authority, yet, yet you are being recognized. But, and this is important, it is not personal, it's business. It is not you as a person, it is your position as authority. Therefore, you know that you count, that you are recognized when a hysteric uh, singles you out for criticism. So I should be proud if he one day singled me out for criticism. You can pride yourself of not being irrelevant if he does that. And this is what Stauners and Juleskjaer do not understand. Their logic is a paranoid, imaginary one. If you're not for us, you are against us. If you do not support us, supplement our research design, you are against us. The logic is this imaginary dual for or against. No doubt, the hysteric tries to pull the authority down from his or her pedestal, but he still recognizes authority. Why else would Römer seek out Stauner's response? Why does he care what she, she thinks of his criticism? To repeat, because the hysteric recognizes authority. No one is more respectful than a hysteric like Römer. Uh, hysteric like Römer. I am positive that there are lots of colleagues who shrug their shoulders when they hear about Stauner's and Juleskjaer's work, if they have heard about it at all. And you can count me among the shoulder-shrugging kind. This is not recognition. In fact, quite the opposite. In academia, recognition is a play, is a play when you criticize. So the difference between a paranoid logic and a hysterical uh, logic is that the, that the hysteric 
does not think, think within a dual imaginary logic, but recognizes a third symbolic level. And this is why we Lacanians need the concept of the big other. And this is the reason why Römer is not out to attack Staunus or Julskjær as persons. Staunus is a representative of the big other. Additionally, in his many defense writings, Römer repeatedly insists that, that the thinking he criticizes is in their concepts, in their writing. It is their texts, not them as persons, he criticizes. He repeatedly distinguishes between the text and the author of the text. And that is indeed a good old idea. Why? It implies that scientific writing is other to the author. The author is not sole nor highest authority to his or her own text. When published, the text is other. It is something which can and must be interpreted, something about which you can disagree. Staunus and Juske are not identical with their own text. This is exactly what we had when we gave the feedback to the students. And I'm, I'm telling them that the student, that what they're writing they signifies that they have misunderstood the point, and boom, boom. And then the student says, but that wasn't what I meant. And I say, excellent. It's not what you meant, but this is what you write. And then we have a discussion backwards and forwards with whether what they mean is identical with what they're writing. The text is other uh, in, in relation to the author. And the author is not highest authority, because I can say to the students, this, you may, this is not what you meant, but this is what you write. And then we can, yeah. Uh, anyway. Um, uh, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, boom, 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 boom. Therefore, it makes sense to him, to, to, uh, to Römer, that he can both criticize Downers and Juleskjær and write a polite email seeking out their response. Because it's not personal, it's, not, it's business. Um, why should Staunus and uh, Julskjær have answered Römer? And why, uh, and why was their complaint dismissed unequivocally? My point is that just like Römer was not criticizing Staunus and Julskjær personally, Staunus and Julskjær should not have answered Römer as a concrete person. They should have answered the big other, that is the anonymous academic public, the ones that read his blog. Why? They may think that Römer is beyond a pedagogical reach, that it is impossible to reason with him. Fair enough, they might have a point. Mm -hmm. But the point is, they are not supposed to reason with Römer as a person. They are supposed to reason with the general academic public, with academia. They are supposed to explain to the public why Römer has misunderstood them, why his criticism is unreasonable. If they had done that, they would have earned my respect and no doubt the respect of the general public. And I personally would probably have lost interest in this dispute. It, it would have turned into yet another of the many ongoing and never ending academic debates. And I would not have been forced to take sides. That is 
also my basic point, I would not have been forced to take sides. I would not have been drawn into this paranoid discourse where your only option is for or against. Now, uh, what, would I have, what would I have done if Reumer had singled me out for criticism? Have, do I have uh, five minutes? Well, yeah, you're already singled out, but it's really interesting what you're saying. So what should we, uh, how, well, she's violating the rules, of course. Five minutes. Five minutes. Five minutes. It's only I or maybe only two minutes because I'm I'm at the end. Uh, yeah. Um, Remember that your students must also be uh, free to violate your rules. Yes. 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 Yeah, what, what, what would I have done if, if Reumer had singled me out for criticism? Because I'm all for a discussion whether his way of criticizing is, uh, is uh, what was it, your, uh, what was it, your uh, critical encouragement. I think that's a uh, beautiful uh, way of expressing it because I'm all for discussing whether his way of criticizing is productive and constructive. Mm -hmm. I am all for it, but that, that presupposes that we speak to each other. Uh, so what would I have done if, uh, if, uh, if Reumer had singled me out for criticism? There are at least three options. Uh, the, the first one, uh, I could have ignored him. I could think life is too short. Uh, I have no time for this colleague who does not understand some very basic points in my theoretical background. Uh, and it would certainly not be a noble reaction. In fact, it would be arrogance. Uh, but nobody's perfect, as, as we know. I could also have written him a polite email, you know, along the lines that, thank you for taking an interest in my work. I think you misunderstand and misrepresent my points, but unfortunately, I have too much on my plate to find the time to give you a proper response. Maybe some other time. Uh, sincerely. Um, <laughs> now, you, you, you can claim that when being polite, you are faking it. You are being untruthful. I, on the contrary, will claim that politeness respects the rules of the game. It is out of respect for the big other that you are polite. And what difference does that make? You are being polite, you don't, do not exclude the possibility of future conversations and co cooperations. You do not dissolve social bonds in this imaginary rivalry and fight to death for, for recognition. Then the third option, the best option, that would be I write a paper where the academic public learns about my arguments for him not having understood the first thing of my position. Uh, I would write in order to enlighten the big other, not Römer. Would this stop Römer? I have no reason to believe so. And why should it? Proper academic and scientific debate never ends. But this would, this would get, have given the public an understanding of why I cannot spend more time on this. I would have shown respect for the scientific community, the big other, not for the small other that is Römer. And in conclusion, this is the reason why I and the public responded as if we were, had been attacked personally. Because the Stauners and Juleskjaer had disregarded the big other of the academic community, the scientific society. They showed disrespect for the rules of the game, the big other. Thank you. <laughs>